0: Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tenea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. With the 2020 election campaigns gearing up, we're sharing one of our favorite past programs that explores corporate campaign spending and much more, Adam Winkler, author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, and Kent Greenfield, author of Corporations Are People Too, explain how corporations won constitutional rights. NCC scholar and residence Michael Gerhard hosts. Here's Mike to get us started.
1: So we've got an incredibly important subject today, and I wanna just hit the ground running if I can. I'm gonna to turn to Adam first to sort of help us with the larger question, which is really raised by the titles of your two books um, about corporations, and Kent's title's obviously about, we, about corporations, but he says corporations might be people to some extent. Adam, where do you come down on that
2: question after having thought about it for a long time? Right. Well, it's a, it's a great question. There's been so much controversy over corporate personhood since the Citizens United decision in 2010. That was a case where the Supreme Court held that corporations have the same right as individuals to spend their money on election ads. Um, and this has raised put a lo- sort of a public spotlight on this question. Are corporations people? And what does that mean? But the idea of corporate personhood is actually a very long one, a very well-established legal principle. And in fact, if you go back to 1757 and you read Blackstone's influential commentaries on the laws of England, one of the most uh, influential law books ever written, he describes corporations as artificial persons 300 years ago, Um, and uh, corporate law has really since that time always treated corporations as being people. Now, that's not to say they're exactly the same as you and me. Um, If you prick them, they do not bleed. Um, uh, The idea of personhood is that a corporation is its own independent entity in the eyes of the law, uh, totally wholly separate and apart from the stockholders or the people who form or organize the corporation. That's a real key principle in corporate law today, for instance, so if you slip and fall at a Starbucks, you can't sue the individual shareholders of Starbucks. You have to sue the corporation, right? That's because the, uh, the shareholders have limited liability. They're separate legal persons than the corporation. So the idea that the corporation is a person is just the idea that it has its own independent identity in the eyes of the law. Um, what's become so controversial in recent years is that the courts use that idea of corporate personhood to then say that corporations have many of the same rights that the Constitution guarantees to persons and to citizens. And that's a much more uh, controversial way of thinking about corporate personhood. Um, And in many ways, as I'm sure our conversation will reveal, um, I'm of the opinion that actually the reason why corporations have so many rights today is not because of corporate personhood, but actually in fundamental ways because the Supreme Court ignores corporate personhood. That the Supreme Court generally gives corporations and allows corporations to exert the exact same rights as its members. So the fact that the members have the rights means that the corporation has the rights. Uh, And uh, that's a violation of the idea of corporate personhood, the idea that they're separate legal persons with separate legal rights.
1: So Kent, your title, among other things, suggests that they're they're people, but of course you also write in your book, um, which will be forthcoming later this year, uh, but you also write about how their corporations are a little different than people too. So would you agree with most of what Adam said or where uh, would you disagree? Yes, uh, absolutely
3: I would. And, and one of the things to remember is that corporate personhood is one of the engines for economic development as it turns out because it, what enables corporations to, be, to make money is to separate the investors from the entity so that the entity itself has its own liabilities, has its own legal powers, and doesn't depend on attaching shareholders. One of the differences between a partnership, for example, and a, and a, and a corporation is that a partnership is liable for all the acts of all the partners. If a partner commits a tort, uh, then, then the partnership has to pay for it. That's not true about corporations. And one of the, the, the big legal innovations of of uh, our economic development worldwide, in fact, was this development of corporate personhood. Now, of course, the difficulty is when, when does corporate personhood, as a matter of corporate governance, get transformed into legal rights, especially in the constitutional world? And there, too, I think that it's because that they are economic entities, there are some totally easy cases. Uh, for example. Uh, a, because of the property entities that uh, that have the purpose of making money there are a bunch of co- constitutional rights that are about property rights the takings clause that makes that prohibits the government from taking property without uh, due, due compensation of course that should flow to corporate entities if, if if the company could could go into coca-cola and take out and and say okay we, we own that secret recipe or go into the the New York Times and seize the printing press of the New York Times without compensation. Nobody would invest in the corporations and corporations would cease to be able to fulfill their, their institutional purpose. I think the harder, and then of course there are some rights that certainly should not flow to corporate entities or in fact any associational entity. The right to vote, it just doesn't make any sense to think of a collective body whether it be Planned Parenthood, the Boy Scouts, the NRA, or GE to be able to vote. So some rights clearly ought to flow to corporate entities and some rights clearly should not. But where the fights are, where the interesting conversations are, what happens to these middle grounds? What happens to these rights that pertain to and spring from interest in liberty and equality and
1: and speech? Well, what our discussion is gonna help us do today is almost begin to look at constitutional law from an entirely different perspective. Kind of tell that same story, but it's a story about the rise of corporations constitutional entitlements. It has a beginning, of course, and Adam traces this history in his book, takes us back to the early 19th century into some of the greatest lawyers uh, in American history, uh, including Daniel Webster. Adam, tell us a little bit about how this story begins, how corporations begin
2: to win entitlements really to some degree of constitutional protection. Sure. Uh, I mean, and we see, you know, cases like Citizens United, um, it seems like a new controversy the idea of corporations having constitutional rights. It's not something we had ever really thought of much. And in fact, if you open up, any constitutional law textbook used in law schools today, there's no section in there on the rights of, constitutional rights of corporations. Uh, it just was never really studied before. People really didn't think about it very much except for haphazardly or here and there. Uh, and, but it turns out that corporations have been fighting since America's earliest days to win equal rights under the Constitution. And corporations don't march on the street with signs Hmm. demanding equal rights like uh, women and minorities did to win their equal rights, but corporations have fought a 200 year battle in the Supreme Court of the United States to get landmark rulings extending fundamental rights to corporate entities. And uh, to put this in some perspective, The first Supreme Court case on the rights of African Americans was decided in 1857, the Dred Scott case. The first Supreme Court case on the rights of women was decided in 1873, the Bradwell versus Illinois case. The first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations was decided in 1809, a half century earlier. uh, that case was brought uh, by a corporation that was very popular here in Philadelphia at the time, the Bank of the United States, the first Bank of the United States. The building is right around the corner, um, uh, and uh, it brought the first Supreme Court case. Uh, it, uh, the Bank of the United States sought the right to sue in federal court under a provision of the Constitution known as Article III, um, and this provides a right of citizens of one state to sue in federal court if you're suing citizens of another state. And the Bank of the United States wanted to file a lawsuit against Georgia, people in Georgia, uh, and it went to federal court and said, we want to be able to file suit in federal court even though the text of the Constitution refers only to citizens having that right. But the Bank of the United States, aided by uh, uh, some excellent lawyers, um, was able to convince the Supreme Court in that 1809 case to say that corporations were protected by this provision of the the Constitution. They did have the right to sue in federal court, even though that right was only guaranteed to citizens. Um, uh, And again, uh, corporations won that first case and they've been winning cases uh, ever since. Well, in fact,
1: maybe it's helpful, Kent, to talk about one of those other big cases that was decided early on. Um, And this is a little bit of a surprise if we think about it. I don't know much about corporate law, by the way, we're all getting educated about that today. Um, uh, But usually I think we think of corporations being formed because of um, state law. There's, There's state legal provisions and procedures that have to go on through in order for a corporation to be established or chartered. However, one of the earliest cases, a case called McCulloch versus Maryland, involves actually a federal corporation, federal business known as the Bank of the United States, as Adam just referred to. What happens in that case? Well, it was the case
3: that where John Marshall decides that yes, Congress can create this, this, this bank. And it's one of the, the efforts on, on John Marshall's uh, side to be much more expansive about the rights of the federal government. Uh, he, he says, we must remember that it is a constitution we are, expan- we, are, we are expounding. So we are a government of enumerated powers, but there's not really a power that says we can create the, the, the Bank of the United States. But we're just going to assume it exists from the Necessary and Proper Clause and and other things. So the this the one one takeaway perhaps from that is is that even in our earliest days of our, of the nation, a, as a tool for, to expand federal power, the way that came about was aiming at corporate entities and aiming at looking at business, not not at the rights of mortals.
1: So Adam, back to now we're going to pick up again with this. Uh, really the litigation that's giving, that's shaping, um, uh, for lack of a better phrase, corporate power. Um, And one of the things that you and I talked about not too long ago, just in the green room, um, was a little bit about the, it's not, the rise of corporate power isn't linear. It doesn't necessarily go in a straight line. There's some pushback. And some of that pushback on Supreme Court comes from a surprising direction. Um, Chief Justice Roger Taney is remembered um, for his horrific decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford, but he, but he also has other decisions too, which to some extent are pushing back against this rise of uh, corporate power. Tell us a little bit about
2: that. Right, well, uh, Roger Taney, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, author of the notorious Dred Scott case that you mentioned, uh, certainly one of the most reviled figures in the history of the Supreme Court, really. Uh, If there's one one surprising thing I found in writing We the Corporations is that um, there's one feature of Roger Taney that many people today might appreciate nonetheless, which was that he was a corporate reformer who was opposed to expansive rights for corporations. Uh, And even in the Taney Court in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, the Supreme Court, court faced the question of whether corporations should have constitutional rights. Um, and the, the Taney court really limited those rights, tried to scale back the rights uh, of, of business corporations. Uh, and so Taney was a surprising uh, supporter of the idea of limiting uh, the rights of corporations. Interestingly, uh, you mentioned Daniel Webster earlier and right outside uh, there's a great uh, Daniel Webster quote uh, on in the uh, entryway of the National Constitution Center. Uh, about uh, uh, one country and one constitution. Um, And uh, Webster, uh, in his lifetime, was known as the defender of the Constitution. Uh, Maybe one of the greatest Supreme Court advocates ever in American history, argued over 220 cases in the Supreme Court um, uh, at a time in the early 1800s when many of the provisions of the Constitution were first being interpreted by the Supreme Court. So he was incredibly influential. But he could have been known as the defender of the corporation that his clients were uh, by and large business corporations and many of his most important victories in the Supreme Court were expanding the rights of businesses and merchants uh, and the elites who he represented. And one of the stories I tell about lawyers and Daniel Webster and how he fits in, one of the reasons why corporations have been so successful in winning constitutional rights is that corporations have always had the best, most highest paid creative lawyers (laughs) that the nation can afford. No, to go file, file risky lawsuits, spend the money, try it, be innovative. You know, civil rights movement for women or for racial minorities, they've had some great lawyers, Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you don't get better than that. But they were always underfunded and they didn't have the financing to hire more lawyers and better lawyers and additional lawyers and, and fight no, these novel risky cases. Corporations always did have those resources. And so the ability to hire people like Daniel Webster to take your cases before justices like Roger Taney uh, was a big advantage for corporations.
1: Let me, as a law professor, I'm always obliged to drop a footnote. So let me drop a quick footnote that, in, that, in, um, that is about Daniel Webster because in one of these earlier cases um, that Adam's referring to, a case that we sometimes don't associate with corporations, but it's really a case which is driven to some extent about, by business. Um, this case is called Gibbons versus Ogden. Um, and a case that's very, very important to the scope of congressional power, particularly congressional power to regulate interstate commerce, perhaps Congress's most potent authority. But that case, which gives rise to a broad construction of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, is driven in a fight over steamships and steamboats and, and the business of running those steamboats. Um, so we, as we relearn in constitutional law here, we might wanna r- recognize that so much of that history is intertwined with business
2: and, and the rise of business. Adam? Well, that's right. And so uh, the reason businesses seek constitutional rights for the same reason anyone else does, right? In the sense that they wanna be free from government regulation, right? If you're an LGBT person, you don't want the government coming in and telling you who you can have sex with or not. And corporations, similarly, don't wanna have government coming in and telling them how they can do their business or what they can invest in. So they use those constitutional rights to fight off against government regulation. Um, The difference here is that they're not being regulated to reflect some sort of ancient morality uh, about uh, equality or whatnot. They're being regulated in the interest of the public and in investors, and in the environment, and yet corporations are able to use those rights uh, to fight back. Uh, And indeed, because of those resources, corporations have really been uh, on the cutting edge of American constitutional law. And one of the most surprising things I found in writing the book was not just the corporations have been fighting for equal rights for 200 years and there's a civil rights movement that we've kind of never heard of. Um, but that in fighting for civil rights, they've been constitutional innovators. Like they've really been on the cutting edge of American constitutional law, breathing life, helping to breathe life into some of our most important constitutional rights. So it's a, it's a complicated story. It's not a, a screed against corporations. Right. It's, it's much more uh, nuanced. So, so, it's, so one of, the, one of the, the things that's interesting
3: about this era, mm-hmm. I think, is, is the court itself, including John Marshall, didn't have a clear conception of what a corporation was, and I think mm-hmm. in some ways it was conflicting, and I, and I think we still live with the problem of what is the right metaphor for a corporation? Is it is it a team, is it an association, is it is it a, its own person? And one of the earliest cases was the, was the Dartmouth College case, right. where the state of New Hampshire was wanting to change the the makeup of, of the personality of Dartmouth College from a private school to a public school, and Dartmouth College sued, and in that court, and the, the the Dartmouth College was alleging that it had a constitutional right not to have its contract with the state changed. But the, John Marshall said in that opinion, the corporation possesses only those properties which the charter confers upon it. So in some ways he was saying, well, you know, the state gets to decide what powers you have. But at the end of that sentence, I didn't read it all, it says, it gets all the powers that the state gives it or is incidental to its very existence. So you get what the state gives it, and whatever you had that's just by nature that you get. So in in some ways, the debate that we still have is what powers are created by, that are very very just incidental to the very creation of of a corporation. And you know why that's important? You don't know what's incidental to the corporation, and John Marshall didn't know 200 years ago. You don't know what's incidental until you know what a corporation is and have a, pretty robust theory of what it's for.
1: Dartmouth College case, of course, argued by Daniel Webster, Webster. Um, a, who loved Dartmouth College. It's, he was an alum of Dartmouth College, and of course expressed that great line at some point in the arg- argument saying, it's a small college, but there are those who love it. Uh, <laughs> which turned out to be a winning argument in the Supreme Court. The right. um, Kent, our story, of course, as you both have pointed out, gets more complicated. Uh, along the way, we get the 14th Amendment. At the end of the first sort of phase, we'll think of it as sort of antebellum period, end of the Civil War, we get the 14th Amendment, which among other things protects persons, guarantees to persons, the equal protection of the laws, guarantees to persons that they won't have their life, liberty, or property uh, deprived without due process of law. But the 14th Amendment term person is gonna be interpreted uh, early on to include not women, but to include corporations. So what happens in that early history?
3: I I really think this is a question for Adam, because Adam has some great stuff in his book about this very case.
2: I've I've got stuff in my book, too, about the case. But let, let him talk about the history. Okay. Well, so yeah, this Fourteenth Amendment is uh, its its actually one of the most bizarre and disturbing stories in American constitutional <laughs> law, actually. Um, and the Fourteenth Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to guarantee the rights of the newly freed slaves. But uh, about 15 years after it was ratified uh, in the 1880s, um, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company. Um, launched a remarkable series of what its lawyers called test cases, more than 60 60 of them in all, seeking rights under the 14th Amendment for business corporations too. And uh, they hired a lawyer by the name of Roscoe Conkling, who at the time, the name not very familiar, but at the time was a very illustrious politician. He was one of the leaders in the Republican Party in Congress for about 15 years. He had been nominated to serve on the Supreme Court himself twice. The second time he was confirmed and turned the seat down becoming the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after having been confirmed. And he was pretty honest about his reasons. He was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads. Um, And Conkling went to the Supreme Court and he said that the 14th Amendment was written not just to protect slaves, but also to protect business corporations. And Conkling had unusual credibility. Not only was he a man who had been nominated to the Supreme Court himself, a peer to the justices, but he was the last surviving member of the drafting committee of the 14th Amendment. He had been one of the men who wrote the 14th Amendment. And he even pulled out a, he said that the amendment had been changed, the drafting had been changed at some point, uh, specifically uh, from protecting equal protection, guaranteeing equal protection of law for citizens to guaranteeing equal protection of law for persons. And he said specifically to include business corporations. And he even produced a, a musty old journal that he claimed was a never before published record of the deliberations of the drafting committee. Like I said, there was no one left, no one survived, other surviving members to, to, to contrast his story or contradict him. Um, it turns out that uh, historians later looked into his story, and it turns out that Roscoe Conkling had simply lied to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court actually never ruled on his case, holding on to it for about three years, and then another one of the Southern Pacific Railroad's test cases made it up to the Supreme Court a couple years later, presenting the exact same issue, but Conkling was no longer involved. Uh, and the Supreme Court in that second case ruled on it, but said, hey, we're not going to rule on this big constitutional question. This raises another issue we can, we can address, but we're not going to say anything about whether corporations have rights under the 14th Amendment and at the time, the court reporter, the clerical person who writes and publishes the Supreme Court's opinions, traditionally puts a summary of the opinion right at the beginning. And in the beginning of the second Southern Pacific Railroad case, the reporter included a summary that said that the court had decided that corporations were persons under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, something the court had clearly not said in the opinion. Uh, a few years later, a justice uh, a somewhat uh, 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 nefarious minded justice by the name of Stephen Field, one of the most colorful men ever to sit on the supreme Court uh, the only Supreme Court justice ever arrested for a crime while he was on the Supreme Court. the crime was murder so uh, he was innocent of course, but he was he was guilty we might say of desperately trying to de- desperately wanting to expand the rights of corporations and in a case a couple years later, he said. Ah, look at that, in the Southern Pacific Railroad case, a few years ago, we decided that corporations were protected by the 14th Amendment. And ever since then, that Southern Pacific Railroad case that does not hold that corporations have rights under the 14th Amendment has been cited over and over again by the Supreme Court, by lower courts, for saying that corporations have rights under the 14th Amendment. One final factoid, in 1912, there was a study done of 14th Amendment cases. And in, about, in the 44 years of the, of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court had heard 28 cases on the, Afri- on the, Supreme, on the 14th Amendment rights of African Americans in that time. In that same period of time, the Supreme Court heard 312 cases on the rights of business corporations. So it's really a real story of how corporations took over the 14th Amendment. Now, here's another, uh, let me tell you the, the corporate law
3: story that is really <laughs> important in this, in this yes. era. So. Meanwhile, right while the, the, while the Supreme Court is saying, uh, corporations, you have rights. You have rights of citizenship, rights, of, rights of, 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 that are shared by persons in the constitutional law space. What was happening in the business law space? The big case had to do with Henry Ford. Henry Ford had had a, a bunch of failed businesses, but in the, or the early 1900s, or early 20th century, he created his, uh, his masterpiece, the Model T. Right. It could come in any color you wanted, as long as it was black. Uh, so, uh, and it, they were making money hand over fist. He had uh, started the, the company with, with $100,000 of, of equity in the early 20th century. About 10, 12 years later, he was making and an, an distributing in dividends to all the shareholders. He was the primary shareholder. But he, to all the shareholders, their initial investment every month. Uh, his investors, by the time the, the case comes around, had made a 40,000% return on their initial money. They had gotten rich. And so he actually became, a, 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 he started saying, well, the purpose of corporations is actually to benefit all people. He, he, he added, the, now we now know that Henry Ford we now was, was a bad person in a lot of ways. He was anti-Semitic, he was an apologist for the Nazis, but at this time of his, of his career, he was actually an advocate for the working class. He raised his wages without needing to to $5 a day. And people were uh, beating down his door to work for Ford. And he decided one day that he was not going to issue any more dividends because he wanted to build a big plant to employ even more people, he said. And he wanted to keep wages high because he said it's better for thousands of workers to be well paid, well fed, and well satisfied at work and to make rich people even richer. That's pretty radical. Right. So he got sued.
0: <gasps> right? he, got sued
3: <laughs> he got sued by whom? By the shareholders. You know who, who his primary uh, shareholders were other than him? Uh, the Dodge brothers. You may know their name because they were creating their, competitive, their competitor uh, company at the same time. So why did they want Ford to give him, him, them money? So they could finance their own company. And so, and of course, Ford had all kinds of business reasons to, to say no, I mean, these days courts, and even then courts deferred to the business judgment of, of executive, but what Ford said to the court in a deposition, no, I'm not doing this for business reasons, I'm doing this for social reasons. And this was an era where people were in the United States were really, this was the Russian Revolution, Eugene Debs was increasing, and the courts could not stand the, the thought that corporations could be about something other than shareholder wealth, and the court in Michigan, as it turns out, issued an opinion. That's still one of the first opinions that you read in a corporate law case. You read Marbury, you read, uh, and you read McCulloch, in, law, in in corporate law you read Dodge v. Ford, and it hmm. says the purpose of the corporation is to serve the shareholders. So I think that's, that is corporate law's original sin. So at the same time that you had this enlargement of the rights of corporations, to be, uh, have the rights of citizens, you have a narrowing of their social obligation. And in fact, a prohibition on the corporation being more robust and, and attentive to their social obligations. And, it's, and in some ways, it's, it's the nightmare scenario. A robust set of constitutional rights uh, that are exercised for the benefit of a sliver of financial and, and managerial elites.
1: Well, the sinfulness will actually spread to some extent. Um, <laughs> because as it does, it, as it does. Um, and Adam as you know in this period and we're now we're talking about the early 1900s among other, other things, um, uh, there's another movement going on of course it's being driven by corporations. This other movement uh, goes by different names, um, economic due process, the right to contract sometimes called the Lochner, era, partly because of course Lochner was a very important case in this era So tell us about this period of time insofar as uh, constitutional law, and particularly the 14th Amendment's relevance to our discussion.
2: Right, so the, the Lochner era is a period that's famous in the Supreme Court's history, roughly from 1890s to 1937. And it's a period where the court is very business friendly and it becomes famous, notorious even, for striking down laws for regulating businesses on a whole variety of grounds. And uh, indeed, at this time, uh, corporations are, are really spurred to bring cases whenever laws regulate them because they think there's a chance of success. And even if they lose, they can raise the cost to lawmakers of regulating them because they have to spend money defending those laws Uh, in court, and so corporations really uh, flooded the Supreme Court with constitutional law cases at the time. Um, We think of Citizens United and a big case coming up, but in the 19-teens a whole bunch of cases came up uh, and legal issues. Corporations brought constitutional challenges to nearly everything and raised uh, equal protection claims, due process claims, uh, claims under the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures, Fifth Amendment claims against uh, rights of self-incrimination, freedom of association Association claims. And interestingly, the court in the Lochner era, although it was a very business-friendly period in the court's history, the court at that time actually do, drew the, some of the first boundaries on the rights of corporations. The Supreme Court in the Lochner era said corporations are entitled to property rights, as Kent said earlier, right? They need property rights. Government shouldn't be able to come in and take their property without paying just compensation. Um, but that they shouldn't have, the court said, they shouldn't. corporations shouldn't have liberty rights the rights that are associated with personal conscience, political freedom, and bodily integrity. Those are the rights that are designed for natural persons, not artificial persons. And a 100 years before uh, Citizens United, uh, the courts had um, cases where corporations, uh, mostly liquor companies uh, in the run-up to prohibition, file challenges to campaign finance laws uh, that restricted corporate money in elections. They went to court and said, these are unconstitutional. Um, But back then, the court said, no, those laws, these campaign finance laws are perfectly constitutional, they're perfectly permissible, because the right to influence politics belongs to natural persons, not artificial persons. It's a line between property rights and liberty rights that today's Supreme Court really has lost sight of. uh, today we 're expanding the rights of corporations to participate in politics, whereas even under the Lochner era when the court was so business friendly the court was limiting the ability of corporations to make such claims which brings us of course to the next era the new new deal
1: but also we 've got the civil rights era can 't what 's happening in corporate law in this period and of course constitutional law may be important as well right. so a,
3: co- a couple of things right that there's there 's a, there's a... There, there's a change in mindset on, on in constitutional law to think instead of the rights of the uh, constitutional rights are just negative rights, but there's a more sense of that the government ought to be involved in the economy, ought to be regulating the economy. So a move from the strict scrutiny of, of economic regulations in the Lochner era to a more rational basis review, so that allows the Congre- Congress to pass a bunch of laws during the New Deal, and if you think about it, the important laws of the New Deal are much about regulating corporations. You know, the Great Securities Acts, the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, uh, uh, consumer credit, credit protections. That's expanded, if you think of, the, of this as a broader uh, period, into the 60s with the, with, and the 70s even with the Civil Rights Act. If you think of the Civil Rights Act, it's limitations on business, on their ability to discriminate against people in uh, and, and, and hiring and firing and, and, and in service, uh, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Meanwhile, in, in corporate law and in corporate governance, there's a, there was a big change sort of as a matter of theory within the New Deal, and the theory there was there was a real pushback against this notion that corporations are just about money. I think there, was, uh, there were a number of, of academics, you know, a lot of, a lot of academics uh, the work of academics are ignored, uh, and a lot of them should be. Uh, uh, sorry, not, not us, of course. People uh, <laughs> should listen to us. Uh, but there was, a, there was a sense, there was a, uh, one of the most important uh, theoretical changes in this era was a, a book uh, written by Burley and Means, two law professors who, who said that, you know what, the, the s- companies have changed what kind of entities they are. Instead of being entities where the shareholders are really closely linked to management, what was happening then was that management and shareholders became separated there was a separation between management and control I'm sorry ownership uh, the shareholders and control and what the, what Burley and mean said was actually that gives us a space to impose more social obligations more public obligations on these big entities they have they, they affect people they, uh, they, they, they rule people's lives and Shareholders, instead of thinking of themselves as owners, we should think of them more as investors. And and the collective uh, nature of corporations became brought more to the fore. And I think there was was a period of time in that middle of the 20th century where where managers of corporations thought of themselves as more professionals. They were were a profession that, that had social obligations that extended beyond what you would see on the bottom line.
1: Well, Adam, in the law, of course, um, the, another concept is gonna become really important. Um, and we've kind of touched on it before, but now we need to sort of focus on it more directly. And that's the personhood concept, the idea that corporations um, may turn out to be treated as persons
2: for purposes of constitutional law. At what point does that concept kick in? Right, well I mean in some ways it goes all the way back to that first 1809 case with the Bank of the United States when the corporation said we're citizens under Article Three of the Constitution. So in some ways the idea is really a very long and established one uh, in terms of corporations seeking uh, personhood. But one of the interesting things I find in my book is that um, if we think of corporate personhood as this idea that a corporation is an independent entity in the eyes of the law with its own rights wholly separate from the rights of shareholders, If we take that as our understanding of corporate personhood, when the court approaches corporations like that, the court has historically limited and reduced the rights of corporations. It hasn't given them the same rights as people. It's generally said corporations are unique kinds of people, and they're separate from the people within them. An example from uh, the early 20th century, uh, for most of human history, corporations were not subject to criminal penalty. They were thought not to be capable of devising the the mental state that's necessary uh, to uh, commit a crime. Uh, But that changes about 100, 120 years ago. Uh, And when corporations first start being brought up on charges uh, for criminal complaints, um, they go to court and say, "We, we think we should be protected by the Constitution's provisions that protect criminal defendants. You know, if you look at the Bill of Rights, it's mostly about the investigation, prosecution, and punishment of criminals. Um, and corporations went to court and said, like criminal defendants, we have a right against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, we have a right against self-incrimination like, uh, like uh, criminals. And there was a case um, involving Teddy Roosevelt who's also got a quote out there in the front hallway. And Roosevelt's famous for his antitrust prosecutions, right? cracking down on the big trusts, And he subpoenas the executives of the tobacco company to come testify before the grand jury because he's going after the tobacco trust. And the tobacco companies uh, say, wait a second, having our own officers testify against us, that's a violation of our Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Hmm. And the Supreme Court rejects that argument and says, no, corporations don't have that right against self-incrimination. If the officer testifies, it's a, the officer is a separate legal person from the corporation, so it's not self-incrimination. And so when the court has divided, it's seen a separation between the rights of the members and the rights of the corporate entity, it's generally resulted in corporations having more limited rights. So it's one of the odd things about corporate personhood is that it's often used to limit the rights of corporations not always to expand the rights of corporations.
3: And I want to foreshadow something because I, I know we're running chronologically, but I think this is a really important point, and it's a really important point now. Uh, and it's, and a, for example, you've heard of the Hobby Lobby case that the court decided several years ago. You hear about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that the court is hearing uh, this, this term. Hobby Lobby was about a company that said, look, we've got, we've got our shareholders are religious we should not be forced by obamacare at the time to distribute contraceptives to our to our employees or provide health insurance that would allow them to buy contraceptives that's against the company's religious beliefs the court and in fact i helped write a brief and file a brief in that case arguing for corporate personhood like why would i do that because like adam said if the court had taken seriously the notion of corporate personhood that means separation the reason the corporation was asserting religious conscious rights was not because the, the company was a religious company, it sold arts and crafts, but it was because the shareholders were religious. And so the court allowed the, the, the shareholders to project, to project their mm-hmm. religious uh, conscience rights onto the corporation. That's a rejection of corporate, of corporate personhood, not its embrace. The same is true about Masterpiece Cake Shop. This is the case where the, the baker is, a re, uh, is is an evangelical Christian, refused to provide a, a wedding cake to a to a same-sex couple that came into his shop, and the, the, he says, "Look, you know, I've got a religious right not to provide, not to endorse your wedding, not to use my speech, and he, you know, this is like forcing me to say the Pledge of Allegiance if I don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance." But why is the case called Masterpiece Cake Shop? Because the company is the plaintiff, actually the defendant in that case, not the individual. So, so I wrote a brief in that case, too. Someday the court might listen to me, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, and, I, and I argued to the court, and it was signed by a bunch of corporate law professors. Corporate law professors are playing now. We have to start being involved in, in the constitutional law space. And what mm-hmm. was our argument? Our argument was corporate personhood. Apply corporate personhood in this, in this, uh, in this case. Because if you apply a corporate personhood, that means there's a separation between the company, the bakery, and the, uh, and, and the shareholder. He formed a corporation, not as an individual proprietorship, not as a partnership, to separate himself from, from the liabilities, the, the costs of the company. And as we said in the brief, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> Or it was out. one of my best lines of all time. I gotta, I to <laughs> I, 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 I be say, saying it all the time.
2: But now we're gonna have to find out if that actually translates into a constitutional principle
1: right. or not. Right.
2: Yeah. I was gonna say, you know, and this is an issue we have confronted before, the Masterpiece Cake Shop I- issue. Um, Um, And the question is this baker in Colorado who doesn't want to provide this uh, wedding cake to a same-sex couple, um, we've seen this before. Um, If we go back uh, in the 1960s, for instance, when the Civil Rights Act was uh, banned public accommodations from discriminating on the basis of race. Corporations went to the Supreme Court and went to the lower federal courts arguing that this law violated their constitutional rights. Their arguments weren't necessarily the exact same in terms of expression, uh, customizable cakes because it wasn't customizable, but they were, you tried to use the Constitution to say we shouldn't have to serve customers, we don't want to serve, and if we want to discriminate on the basis of race, that's our constitutional right. And the courts rejected that argument in the civil rights era, and indeed I found even going back in the Lochner era, there was a case back in in 1907 where the Supreme Court said specifically that corporations do not have a constitutional right to refuse to do service with customers that it doesn't want to do business with. Um, And it dealt with a civil rights statute, a public access statute in California, uh, and a racetrack that didn't wanna let certain people come, uh, uh, come onto its grounds. And the Supreme Court said back then, that's not the kind of right that a corporation has, a right to keep people out. If you're open to the public, you're open to the public. That's a line that the Supreme Court seems to be on the verge of forgetting. Uh, and uh, this Masterpiece Cake Shop case could be one where not only the court ignores corporate personhood, but carves an exception out for businesses so that they don't have to follow basic civil rights principles, which would be, I think, uh, highly problematic. Well, I do want to get back
1: to the, uh, we're gonna get to another major current case, Um, and I'm gonna come to you on that in a second, Kent. Of course, this case is well known Um, called Citizens United. But before I get there, Adam, I want you just to round out your history a little more, if you don't mind, to tell us about the participation on the court of one particular justice who comes to the court with a particular, I don't know that one might call it agenda, but interest in protecting corporations, and it may be surprising to a lot of people, and this is Lewis Powell, one of President Nixon's appointees, who comes there uh, having served, among other things, the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and so what is Powell's impact here?
2: Yeah, well Lewis Powell is a really interesting thing. Uh, one of the fun things about writing the book was uh, to get into involved in the stories of great characters like the Daniel Webster's and the Stephen Fields and the Roscoe Conklings and uh, uh, indeed here too. Um, uh, Lewis Powell was one of these characters. And um, if Daniel Webster was the, sort of the, the, the defender of the corporation, uh, um, in many ways Lewis Powell was sort of uh, the corporation's most favorite justice on the Supreme Court, because Lewis Powell uh, was, uh, before he joins the Supreme Court in 1971, he writes a memo for uh, the Chamber of Commerce. This is the era of Nader and the era of of Clean Air Acts and environmental regulation and consumer protection laws being passed, and Powell is opposed to this, and Powell thinks that the left and Nader have gotten way too much power, so he writes a memo. Uh, to the Chamber of Commerce, advising how the Chamber of Commerce should organize businesses to mobilize and to fight back against Nader and the left. Uh, And this memo, he writes to the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and uh, and then three months later, he's appointed to the Supreme Court, and uh, no one knows about the memo at the time, but the memo goes on to become a very, very influential planning document for businesses to mobilize, uh, and businesses which is, had often been on the sidelines of partisan politics before the 1970s, they decide they're going to get really active and really mobilize, uh, and indeed in the last 30, 40 years have really exerted their political power more than, uh, perhaps more than ever. Um, and Uh, And Powell uh, gets the chance, when he's on the Supreme Court, to actually operationalize his own memo, and in an important case in the 1970s, he, 30 years before Citizens United, he holds, he writes an opinion for the court holding that corporations have rights of political speech under the First Amendment, and gives them that constitutional right to fight back. Um, One of the most remarkable things, a a great story I found in writing my book, is uh, Powell, before he becomes, joins the Supreme Court, he's on the board of directors of Philip Morris, for a long time, a lot of uh, tobacco relations in his family. Uh, and uh, at Philip Morris, they throw uh, a party for him, a going away party after he's appointed to the Supreme Court. And the head of Philip Morris gets up and they do this elaborate toast, uh, multimedia toast that like goes on 10 or 15 minutes, reenacting reenacting times in uh, Lewis Powell's life with a humorous edge. And at the very end, the head of Philip Morris says, well, it's traditional for the friends of a new Supreme Court justice, uh, to provide that justice with his robes of office. And so he comes up, Powell, to the stage and is literally given his robes of office by Philip Morris. Um, and it's sort of a sign of, of sort of how corporations are really gonna be able to use the Supreme Court to fight back against the Ralph Nader's in the years to come.
1: Well, we've, there's so much more we can talk about, um, but we need to of course get to one of the big uh, subjects that comes up here. Um, and we've already touched on it, Kent, that of course is Citizens United. Um, I've read through the terrific questions from our audience. My rough calculation and math is not my best subject. is 75% of the questions are about Citizens United. So maybe we should talk about it. I think we should. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell us what happens in that case and curious to know whether you think it was correctly decided. Okay, so this was a case about a movie.
3: Uh, there was, a, there was a, a non-profit group called Citizens United uh, produced a movie uh, about Hillary this was in 2008 when she was running the, the first time during the primaries and they wanted to make it available on on-demand uh, uh, television so you could you could order it But there was a federal statute that said uh, companies using corporate money cannot spend money for advertisements against or for a candidate within a certain amount of time before a primary and before a general election and so The film, if it was considered a commercial, uh, would would have been uh, against this. Would have prohibited. Would have been uh, been banned by the statute. So the question was whether the statute, which limited corporations' ability to spend money, uh, was constitutional. So it gets to the court. It's actually argued twice. The first time it's argued, the 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 lawyer for the for the federal government, the deputy solicitor general, makes a big mistake. The, the, one of the justices says, Well, just hypothetically, would you think that the First Amendment would allow the federal government to ban books if they were in favor or against a, uh, a candidate? And the lawyer said, Yeah, we would never do that, but yes. Hmm. And, the, and you could see the steam uh, flowing out of the, the justice's ears. And the court reset argument for it to be argued a second time and explicitly asked the advocates to rebrief the question about whether uh, a prior case that had limited corporate spending rights should be overturned. That case was called Austin, the B- B- Michigan Chamber of Commerce, and the question explicitly on the table then was whether that case should be overturned. And it was reargued in the summer. They don't like working here in the summer, so this was a special situation. Like they, they asked for a reargument, And this time, uh, the Solicitor General of the United States, Elena Kagan at the time, argued the case for the government. She didn't. Farming out to a to a, to a junior lawyer, so the 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 question was was squarely presented: Do corporations have uh, have First Amendment rights to spend money? Now, individuals, the court had held back in a case called Buckley twenty or, twenty or thirty years before, uh, that individuals do have a First Amendment right to spend as much money as they want. Right, you can, you can uh, uh, throw money uh, and to, to buy advertisements to buy materials, there is a cap on contributions. It's a little arcane, but it's sort of, and I have trouble teaching my students this sometimes. uh, It is constitutional, the court held, to cap contributions, but not constitutional to cap expenditures. And so the question was merely, uh, should the same rule that applies to individuals be applied to corporations? And the court said, yes, we're we're going to apply the same rule to Corporations as individuals. Now, I do think the the, the Citizens United was, uh, I think, had a lot of flaws in it. It didn't. Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion, uh, writes a big decision. It's it's a self-consciously a big decision. He could have narrowed the, uh, the decision to be about nonprofits. He could have he could have made it on statutory grounds, saying, "Well, this isn't an advertisement. This is a film." So there are a bunch of ways he could have avoided the the topic. But he doesn't. He goes right to it and says corporations have a First Amendment right to engage in political speech and to engage in political spending just like individuals do. So, was it rightly decided? Yes and no. (laughs) Uh, Here's what I think. I think the problem in America that that politicians have to spend so much money uh, raising money uh, that, our, that our democracy depends on money, I think that is a horrible flaw in the way we run our democracy. A lot of other advanced democracies don't do it that way. So I think there ought to be a constitutional limit on, on expenditures and on contributions. And, and so I think the original sin there is Buckley, not Citizens United. And in fact, I think if, if money spent in politics uh, is, is bad, whether it's spent by GE or Sheldon Adelson or, or George Soros. Uh, too much money, um, and by some voices, drown out others. So I think the real problem is Buckley, not Citizens United. And as it turns out, after Citizens United, corporate money has not exploded, as it turns out. Super PAC money has, but you know who has been contributing to super PACs? High, wealthy individuals, unions, and not so much corporations. You know, uh, in, in 2016, the largest Uh, contribution to a super PAC from a for-profit publicly-traded company was a million dollars contributed to the super PAC that was supporting Jeb Bush so if you add up the top 50 contributions to super PACs by for-profit companies it it runs about uh, uh, less than 50 million dollars Tom Steyer gave over 50 million, uh, 90 million. Sheldon Adelson gave 80 million individually. So it looks like for-profit, publicly traded companies are are less than 1 of all the uh, expenditures after Citizens United. So Citizens United is is has a lot of problems to it, but it has not inc- not created the explosion in corporate money that many of us expected. Now I think there's a lot more to be said about when corporations, what what limitations you could put on corporate spending, and I think there are reasons. Uh, why corporation spending might be different from individual spending. For example, I, I think it's completely consistent with the First Amendment for a state to say, in order for a company to spend money in this space, you gotta get a shareholder vote. You got, and I would even say you, can, you have to have a, a vote of employees because those are governance questions and those turn on state law. So in a way, so my, one takeaway, that if I had asked you to take away what, what that Greenfield guy was gonna say, the remedy for Citizens United and the remedy for corporate the problems of corporate power in in this country today are corporate governance rem- remedies, not constitutional ones. So let me pause there. I think it's a bigger,
1: bigger topic. I appreciate I appreciate things. that, um, Adam. I have a feeling you've got a thing or two to say about Citizens United, but <laughs> <laughs> if I can, I, I there's so I, I want you to express no, those. Ahead. But we have a lot of questions here from the audience. Let me. It's hard to know which one to come with next, but. Just ask any question, I'll uh, give the answer but I one of them anyway. is um, Okay. I, one of them is Citizens United gave labor unions the same rights as corporations. Are labor
2: unions people too? Yeah, You know, labor unions are people too in fundamental ways uh, in the sense that th- they are independent entities in the eyes of the law uh, that um, uh, should have, in some ways, uh, rights that they need to be able to protect, um, but they're not people in quite the same way. Um, and one of the things uh, to note though is that uh, it's it is true that unions have taken advantage of Citizens United more, I think more so than many corporations have. Mm-hmm. Although I think that may be just uh, a time thing. One thing, if you look at the history uh, of—I spent a lot of time, uh, sort of a special focus in the We the Corporations, thinking about efforts to regulate corporate money in politics because that is one of those central issues that we're so interested in. And part of the reason why I think Citizens United is wrong is because it overturns a hundred-year-long commitment and uh, compromise we had made, which was that corporations, Uh, We have a system that uses a lot of money in our elections, but that we would keep corporations out of electoral politics. That was a a compromise we reached in 1907 uh, with the first federal campaign finance law, which was the Tillman Act that banned corporate money in elections. And that was enacted very specifically to try to restrict the ability of corporations to influence big presidential uh, elections. And what we've seen over the course of history since is that uh, unions were eventually added to that ban too, prohibited from spending money on elections, and unions were the first ones to really push back against it. And uh, we think about political action committees and PACs, those were actually formed by labor unions in the 1930s trying to expand their political power in light of the fact that they had been banned from contributing directly to candidates. And corporations don't rush in and form PACs. It takes till the 1970s and Congress passing a law that clearly says PACs can be formed by corporations, that corporations then take to it. But when, so they're they're really slow to take to this political reform, this reform to exercise, because they're kind of fearful of what's gonna happen if they get involved in electoral politics. But once they do, within 10 years, by 1980, corporations outspend labor unions, three dollars to one in corporate PACs. So they're slow to adopt to some of these reforms, but once they adopt, they really take it over. And I wouldn't be surprised to see in the next 10, 20 years, if Citizens United is not reformed, corporations spending a lot more money, and maybe not so much in the federal elections that Kent was talking about, but in local elections, state elections, city council elections, zoning boards, things where corporations can make a huge difference with just a little bit amount of money. In presidential elections, overwhelming. There's so much money already. What difference can can you make with your 50 million? Take that 50 million, put it on state Supreme Court justice races, and you can change the law pretty good.
3: And, and let me add one, one point. One, sure. of the, one of the reasons that we need to be worried, especially about corporate money, is not just because it perverts our politics, but because it perverts our economics. Right, what do, what why do, why do corporations care? They don't really care. They care not only about the outcome of specific elections, but access to those legislators and politicians after they, they, they become, uh, people in the legislature. And so if a company can use political spending to skew the marketplace in their in their to their benefit, it undermines the very uh, reason why we have corporations to begin with. So one can say that there's a big danger to politics and to democracy of political money, but there's also a danger to economics and to our markets uh, of political money.
1: So Ken, I wanna ask you one or a question, then we're gonna come back to sort of any final thoughts each of you have. Um, lots of questions here about corporate law. I wish I could get to all of them. Let me get to at least one of them um, that may relate back to Citizens United. This question is about if Citizens United is not overturned, is there a way to alter the FEC report to allow for more transparency, Kent, um, and allow the public to know more about where the money might have originated?
3: Absolutely, there, there's no First Amendment restriction on disclosure, and I think there's a, there's a growing effort on the part of shareholders to force companies to disclose what the companies are doing, and I think there's a lot of uh, ways that we can address this problem, uh, even at, outside of the constitutional law space. And, and a bunch of my book that I hope you buy in a few months, uh, available will, for
2: pre-order now. For available on for pre-order. Amazon, so. Don't
3: hesitate. Uh, is, is to say, so about the last third of my book is remedies, and I think the key remedy are corporate governance remedies. And like before you fall asleep, let me let me know, <laughs> let me uh, say what I mean by that. It's, the problem is not that corporations speak, it's for whom they speak. And the, the obligations of for whom they speak are derivative of, of corporate governance rules. It's the Dodge v. Ford rule that corporations to be, man, be managed for the shareholders and the managerial elite. Uh, in a bunch of other democracies, in a bunch of other constitutional democracies, Western industrialized countries, the obligations of corporations run not just to shareholders, but also run to employees, also run to, uh, to other stakeholders. And so my takeaway is that uh, if corporations are gonna play in democracy, then let's inject democracy into corporations to make them more democratic. And then if if they're speaking for all of their stakeholders, I think think actually
1: our democracy might be better for it that they speak. Adam, I wish we could get to the full history that you've written about, but let me point out to the audience, your book is gonna be on sale in the lobby where you're gonna be, of course, happy to sign and talk to people about the book. And I'm happy to sign the flyers. Uh, <laughs> and we're gonna to have to bring Kent back to, so he could physically sign them too. But uh, Adam, in terms of, uh, unfortunately having to wrap up our program here, um, curious to know where, else, where you think the law may be going at this point. In other words, we've got Citizens United. Where, where else can corporations go? Um,
2: in other words, if there's going to be an addendum to your book, what might it be? Right, um, uh, well, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, there are some rights that corporations do not have, but they seem to be seeking those rights now more and more. I mean, this is not—my book is a look back how we got here, but the, the way forward, uh, the questions really that, that Kent's addressing in his book, how should we answer the questions that arise coming up next? There's so many. I mean, we talked already today about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. This is a big case about civil rights and the rights of business. Uh, that uh, we've had corporations that are are um, uh, being very creative in the constitutional rights they're raising. There are. Cases arising under the excessive fines clause of the Constitution where corporations are saying we're protected by that. There are cases uh, where corporations are uh, challenging uh, living wage ordinances as a violation of their 14th Amendment rights. Indeed, there was one study of First Amendment cases, an empirical study that went out and found that 50% of all First Amendment cases brought today are brought by corporations and trade associations that represent corporations. So corporations are very active in using the Constitution to try to expand their rights and there's a whole bunch of cutting edge issues before the Supreme Court that are gonna come up and then either are already before the justices or will come up in the near future. Uh, And unfortunately I think the way we're going with the Supreme Court is to expand the rights of corporations ever more. We've seen that in Hobby Lobby, we've seen that in Citizens United, Uh, I hate to hazard a prediction of a outcome that I don't want, but I think we might get that in the Masterpiece Cake Shop too. Uh, Expansive rights for corporations, even while, on the other hand, the corporations Uh, the Supreme Court's limiting the responsibility of corporations. There was just a case decided this past week uh, that said corporations could not be uh, sued in federal court um, for human rights violations abroad. Um, uh, Again, limiting the responsibility of corporations even while we're expanding their rights. Uh, I think that uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to see more corporations making more claims of constitutional rights uh, and using the Constitution even more to uh, assert their power. Thank you, Adam. And Kent, uh,
1: as Adam says, his book may be, although I think it's modestly said, his book is a look back, but it's a very rich history, of course, that Adam- It's a wonderful book. Brilliantly documents. Um, And you've got a brilliant sort of critique of the legal doctrine. Um, And one of the things I wanna sort of have you talk about at the end is how you suggest that you You think corporations should be treated more like persons uh, in terms of the law, and maybe particularly in terms of constitutional law? Could you explain that a little bit at the end here?
3: So, I so I think the 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 key notion here is that there's some rights that ought to apply to the corporation, some rights that should not. It, it, It turns on not only but we have to talk about what a corporation is for, and we have to talk about what the rights are for. the The result does not fit on a poster. So you, you have to buy a book <laughs> uh, uh, that uh, that will, uh, that, will spell, that will spell it out. But All but right. here's the here, two uh, here books. right. But I think here's the here's the takeaway that I think that once we live, we are in a nightmare scenario. The uh, the in corporate governance. They have an, a legal obligation to focus on the rights and interests of a small sliver of elite, and then those interests are turbocharged in the constitutional space. Uh, now, I think the remedy uh, can, could come from either side, but one remedy that is often ignored is to change the nature of uh, corporate obligations. And if and, what I, and how I think about that is that corporations should be more like people. If they're gonna be people, Let's ask them to act more like people and act more like citizens. What does that mean? I don't act as if only one thing matters in my life. Uh, if I did, I would be a, 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 even more of a weirdo than I am, right? right. Uh, you know, and I act as if my, my actions affect a number of, of people. I have to think about a whole host of people. Corporations in this country are asked to think about only one thing. And if we ask corporations to be more like people, the fact that they are constitutional people would be much less problematic.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, you've suggested there's a nightmare scenario, but I want to remind everybody, we're here in what Jeff Rosen calls constitutional heaven. Um, And we have begun an incredibly thoughtful, important dialogue about corporate power, corporate protections under the Constitution. Interesting idea concept that maybe we don't think about oftentimes when we walk into this building. I think it will enrich our understanding of the Constitution if we do. Um, I really want to thank both our incredibly brilliant, wonderful guests today. It's been an honor to have you here, thank you.
0: <laughs> Today's episode was edited by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.